Well, if coming in here right at the end of the doxology, it's like you're getting in on some of the glory, you know? It's like running out on the field at the end of the game, even though you didn't do anything. <laughs> woo We won. That's right. I just stormed the stage. Fun stuff. I don't have football on my mind today, do I? So uh, this is our book right here. This is the Bible, of course, and uh, this is the book that we live by as God's people, the church. And we continue to hold this up as a book, even though it's been written, uh, the, the, the most recent writing was about 2,000 years ago. And even though this book was written from 3,000 to about 2,000 years ago, we still hold this thing up. And we say this has authority over us. And the reason this has authority over us is because in this book is God's instruction for his people. And it has been used throughout the generation time and time and time and time again. So how do we uphold and honor this book? Well, there's two mistakes we can make that pushes this book to the side. One is that we simply see the Bible as a moral code. If you see the Bible as a moral code, then you're going to read it in such a way that you say, well, that doesn't really apply to today. That doesn't really apply to me. And we push it to the side. The other way uh, to read the Bible is we simply say, well, it's archaic and antiquated. It's for 2,000 years ago, and it no longer applies for today. And we have science today. We've come a long ways. We've outgrown the Bible. It's more primitive than we are. And that's another way to just kind of leave it on the shelves. Both of those are ways that describe this book as something that's kind of dead. But the Word of God is living. And the Word of God still speaks to us. The challenge as the church is how do we read it? How do we interpret it? And how do we listen to the voice of God speaking to us in the midst of it? So part of our question that we have to ask, and really what today's scripture pulls up for us, if uh, we were listening and paying attention to it, is how do we read these texts in light of the world that we live today? How does the church take the book and what God is saying to us in the book and through the power of his Holy Spirit, and how do we let it do what it is called to do? That's the challenge that is before us. Today's text comes from Ephesians chapter 5, and we have been going through Ephesians for a little over a month now. And in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul, who is writing this while under house arrest in Rome to the people of Ephesus and the surrounding churches, while he is doing that, uh, he really lays out his theology in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And it's real dense, and it's hard to understand, and I've read it a thousand times, and every time I read it, I still find new words that pop up. But he's talking about God's grace, and God's doing this amazing thing. And God has saved us, and he's made us alive with him in Christ, and raised us with him in the heavenly places, along with Jesus, as if this has already happened and is already going on right now. He, he goes big on what we call ecclesiology, which is a basically a, a, a theological word for church, the ecclesia, the ones who are called out. God has created his church. The church isn't just a group of people who decided to get together and say, hey, let's get together on the weekends and sing some songs and then have some guy come up and talk to us and then we'll go home. That's not what the church is. The church is God calling a people out of the world. The church is God gathering up a people. The church is Jesus Christ creating in himself a new humanity, 
Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, all kinds of people. God, through Jesus, is gathering up a people for himself. So that's a top-down kind of gathering. That's what the church is. That's a high ecclesiology. Paul lays that out in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. Also, we see sprinkled in there some hints of eschatology, which is another theological fancy word for kind of the things that it's all pointed toward. Where are we going? Where is the end? Where is all of history pointed toward? We do this every single week. I don't know if you pick up on it every week or not, but every week when I pray over these elements, this bread and this wine, I say, make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the body of Christ. We may be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Make us one with you, one with each other, and one in through all the world until what? Anybody? Until Christ returns and we feast at his heavenly banquet. We say that every single week. I've probably not missed a week in my eight and a half years of being here of saying that because it's in the memorization bank. Sometimes the things we say all the time kind of just get lost in the background, don't we? We are always pointed towards something. We're not just blindly going through history trying to make the world a better place. We are going through history toward an end where God has already promised that he will renew all things and he's beginning to do it already. And so after Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul comes in in chapter 4, and I hate to not even preach on chapter 4, so I'm going to give you the 30-second version. Paul is basically calling the church in Ephesus to be a people who are united. He says, you guys need to get along with each other. You need to love one another. By the way that you treat one another, God wants to grow you up into a mature body and into mature people, not children tossed to and fro by every every doctrine or every uh, scheme of the devil, but people who are mature, people who are strong, people who grow up into who you are. God has already made you a new creation in Christ. Live as a new creation. Don't be like your old self. That old self was crucified with Jesus Christ. That old self is gone, has passed away. Don't live out of that old self. Don't participate in the deeds of darkness, sexual immorality, and the like, but be the new self. Be who you were created to be in Christ Jesus, created in him for good works, created in him to love, created in him to be the light, created in him to expose the deeds of the darkness. He's basically saying, you are a new creation, therefore, here is how to live as new creation. He's not simply saying, hey, you're supposed to do this. You need to be good. You should do this. You ought to do this. No, it's grounded in grace. It's grounded in the fact that our God has done something in Jesus Christ. He sent his Holy Spirit upon those who believe and place their faith in him. He's made you a new creation. And because of that big theology of one through three, then we can go to chapter four, which begins with one really big theological word. And that word is... Therefore, okay, it's a big hinge word, Ephesians 4.1, therefore, we've turned the corner and we're on the downhill side of this thing. God's done all this stuff, therefore, here's how you and I cooperate with his grace. That's why chapters 4, 5, and 6 is not simply a moral code. It's not just simply, well, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to be nice to each other. 
No, it is grounded in the reality of who God is. It is grounded in the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And if you come at it with any other angle, you're going to miss it. You're going to come away with more questions than answers. You're going to come away with an overly skeptical view of the very scriptures that we hold up. Okay, I got off track. So here we are in Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul mentions three sets of relationships. And it's always risky business as a man getting up here and and jumping into this, but I'm going to do it anyway because preaching is risky business. Wives and husbands, children and parents, bond servants and masters. Let's start out with wives and husbands. You know, we live in a world that is very suspicious of power and authority. And in a lot of ways, justifiably so. There is no shortage of people who have abused power and authority. Not only in the public realm, but every single one of us knows somebody who has abused power and authority in our lives. Whether it's a boss, whether it's a teacher or a coach, whether it's a parent, whether it's a spouse. Abusive power happens everywhere, from the smallest of infractions to the worst of abuses. We've all seen or experienced such abuse or such infraction. Our public sphere, our culture has realized this. But one of the side effects of what we see and hear in our culture and of this realization is that the stock of masculinity, the value of masculinity in our culture has gone down. It's taken several hits in the last few decades. The failure of many men, combined with our culture's reaction to such failures, have affected masculinity so much so that Possibly young boys may feel a sense of shame in becoming a man, or at very minimum are confused about what masculinity is. After all, what is a real man? As a man, sometimes, I'll just confess, it's hard to, to, to remember what that is anymore. What is a real man? Masculinity in our culture tends to have a negative connotation rather than a positive one. And we live in a reactive culture, and when you have a reactive culture and, and there's things being tweeted and, and put out on news and, thing, and, and the like, it's, it's always going to feel like it has that negative edge to it because we're a culture that thrives on anxiety, whether we like it or not. But in creation and in who we are as God's people, we, because we're created by God, we have actually something positive to say about what things are. That God created us male, and He created us female, and He calls it good. In Genesis chapter 1, we see God's design. He has light, and He separates the light from the darkness. There's day, and there's night. There's water, and there's land. There's sun, and there's moon. All these complementary parts. And then down in Genesis 1.27, it says, God made humanity in His own image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. Whatever masculinity is, it was created by God to be something that is good. 
Everything in Genesis 1 is good. Everything in Genesis 2 is good. It's where we go to find God's original intent and design for creation when he started this whole project off. The culture that we live in can point to what a bad man is. We can all look and say, yeah, that's not exactly what a good man is. But if you want to find the definition of a good man, Genesis and Ephesians are not bad places to start. So here Paul is a couple thousand years ago and a plea for unity for the church is instructing wives to be submissive to their husbands. Now anyone who has had a bad husband or anyone who has had a friend with a bad husband may have problems with this passage. Unfortunately, this scripture does get misused in a way that justifies abuse. Woman, submit. You know, that's really Satan's greatest tool, is getting us to misuse Scripture. He's been misusing God's Word ever since Genesis chapter 3, Garden. He's been misusing God's words ever since he was quoting Scripture to Jesus in the wilderness. But even though many women and probably men have some issues with this passage, perhaps thinking it is outdated or antiquated, and that we in our society have surpassed such primitive ways of thought, I would think that many, if not most, women deep down actually desire their husbands to step up to the plate and to lead spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, and in all ways that are good and right and holy. To not lower the standard of masculinity, but to raise it and to create and cast a vision for what it means for us men to be good and godly husbands. That's a tall order. As a husband myself, I see places in my life where I still have work to do. Paul is appealing to men here. You have a special responsibility as husbands. And that responsibility is modeled in Jesus Christ. You want to know what a real man is? Look to the guy who died on this cross. That's a real man. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the standard. Lay down your life as Christ laid down his. What does lay down your life look like for you? Well, for most of us men, it probably means that we help to provide a significant source of income. But it might also mean you have to lay down the remote control more than you prefer. It might mean you have to do the dishes more or vacuum. At least, I hope that scores points in my house. I think it does. Laying down our lives mean that we put others first, and men can do this as well as women. And the reason we can do this is because Jesus has done it for us. Remember, this isn't just a supposed to. This is a response to the grace of God. As Christ has laid down his life for you, so you are to lay down your life for one another, husbands and wives. Let's move on. Children and parents. My beloved daughter, whom I love, 
likes to point out Ephesians 6, 4 every now and then. Uh, you know, just when you think your kids aren't listening to your prayers or scriptures or anything like that, they're quick to point out ones like, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I love that girl. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here we have another, even a more extreme version of, of what you might call one in authority over the other. Fatherlessness is the most significant problem facing America today, I believe. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Out of fatherless homes, we have 85% of all youth in prison. 63% of youth suicides. 90% of all homeless and runaway children come from fatherless homes. That, that just shows the power of a father. The world needs fathers. The world doesn't just need biological fathers, however. The world needs men. Men who will step up to the fatherhood plate. The world needs father figures. Right here in Lubbock, Texas, so many kids need father figures. I don't know what that might look like. You know, one of the challenges that is, is I think about the, our church and kind of the dynamics of our church, one of the challenges that as much as I love the 930 service, one of the challenges we have is that because our youth is at the same time as the 930 service, they're right here in the context of worship. Do you see any youth in this room? Nope. As a pastor, I feel like I need to do something about that. I don't know what. But it is something that's on my mind and my heart that we need to be rubbing elbows with the young generation. Because a lot of them are losing faith. They need fathers and mothers and father figures and mother figures in their life. You know, Paul doesn't really say it here. But if Christ is the model for husbands to be good husbands, then God would also be the model as a father to us. A model for good fathers and mothers. We have a God who loves us. The spirit of adoption sent into your hearts to say that you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. The more that we come in touch with his grace and his love for us, to that degree, we will be looking out in the world and saying, Lord, who are you showing me to love? Who am I called the father and mother in the world, biological or not? Fathers, do not lord it over your children. Do not provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then finally, bond servants and masters. Now this one might be the most difficult to, to deal with. Is, is Paul justifying slavery here in this letter to the Ephesians? couple of thoughts on that. First of all, Paul could no more imagine a world without some form of slavery as we could imagine a world without electricity. 
It's just something that wasn't even in the equation of his radar screen. Second of all, this word that we get for bondservant has a wide range of meaning. It could mean a hired servant. So if you hired me to come over and, and mow your grass, then I would be your doulos. That's the word, doulos. It could also have to do with a temporary worker who is bound to work for someone else until a debt is paid off. So if I owe you $100,000, I may have to come work for you for several years until my debt is paid off. And then finally, in some cases, in Roman antiquity, a slave, a doulos is actually an involuntary slave, though it's not tied so much to race like it is in American history. So it kind of helps to get a little fresh perspective on what Paul is talking about. In this case, he's most likely referring to those who still owe a debt to somebody and still have some time to work off that debt, though it may not always be the case. But Paul here is addressing whoever is on the other side of this letter, whoever is in the church. And he's saying, bond servants, obey your masters. And he also says, masters, be good to your servants. Today, this would be just about any employer-employee relationship. Most of us have been or are employers or employees or both. Employees. Work your tail off as if you are working for the Lord. You know, most people who have a boss, there are times they just don't really like their boss. There's moments where that's the case. I hear it all the time from people struggling with the boss, struggling with people at work. It's helpful to know that we work for a boss with a capital B. That God is calling us to work as if we are working for Him. When you work, when you get up in the morning, when you go and do whatever it is that you do, who are you working for? Are you working for someone else? Are you just working for yourself? Or are you working for the Lord? If you're a student, are you a student for yourself? Are you a student for a teacher? Or are you a student for the Lord? We are called to do everything that we do for the glory of God. Whatever you do on a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday morning is meant to be an act of your worship. Your work is worship. Let it be worship of God. On the other end, employers, be good to your employees. For you will also someday stand before God as they will. And God shows no partiality. He's not going to say, well, you've worked your way up into the upper levels of management. Therefore, I'm going to cut you some slack. No. We're getting into some eschatology here. Someday when we all stand before the Lord, the more we've been entrusted, the more will be required of us. We have a stewardship. And our employer-employee relationships is a part of that. Do we simply find ourselves within a closed system? Or do we see that even how we live out our lives in the workplace matters to God? Remember also, 
that Paul is not riding from some ivory tower off the coast where he goes to his beach house all the time, but he is under house arrest, chained himself to a Roman soldier who will be martyred in just a year or two. Here's a guy who knows sacrifice. Here's a guy who knows service. And somewhere in the middle of that, he has found himself to be given away to this gospel, this good news of God in Jesus Christ. Not a, not a hopeless way of living as if, well, the world's never going to change, but a way of saying, wherever I'm at, I'm going to do all that I do for God's glory. And all of this is done because of grace. It's not done in order to earn God's love. It's done because God has already loved the world and gave His only begotten Son. It's not done just so that we can get in on God's good side, but because God has already blessed us and made us on His good side. It's not done so that we can become a new person, but because in Jesus Christ, God has already created a new person in you. God's already done the work. All we have to do is cooperate. It takes a lot of burden off of us, doesn't it? Because God has done amazing things in creating us, in loving us, and giving His life for us. And because He has done and will do amazing things in bringing the world to full justice someday. We get to be those people who stand in the gap right now between what He's done and the greatness of His love and what He's going to do and the, fi- and the finality of Him making the world right. So brothers and sisters, I want to invite you, whether you're male or female, young or old, employer or employee, whatever you are, whatever phase of life you're in, consider the relationships in your life family members, your neighbors, your work relationships, even our church. How might God's act of creating you, how might His act of loving you, how might His act of forgiving you and saving you and giving you His promises, how might that bring and impact the way that you treat others today? It all starts right here. It all starts with what He has done for us. It's a beautiful thing to gather here every Sunday to remember the goodness of God, that He has blessed us in ways that are beyond what we could imagine or deserve. And because of that, we can go and bless the world. God has created places for you to go to, people for you to know. And He has called you to be a blessing. But He would never call us to be a blessing unless He blessed us first. So let's receive what He has for us, and then let's go and share it.